Now listen. All the stories contained within here are retold as they were originally recounted and may not be suitable for young'uns or those with a sensitive disposition. <laughs> this here particular story contains descriptions of violence, murderous scenes, and unsolved murders of several individuals. This story also discusses xenophobia and racism, so listener discretion is advised, y'all. Now, I'll be honest with y'all. Some of the time, the hate stories I share with you kind folks are, well, that's what my grandfather would call long-legged tales. <laughs> oh, you know, because they's pulling your legs. <laughs> Some of my stories, though, well, <laughs> they ain't pulling y'all's legs. Some of these stories are just so mind-boggling that you just can't believe they could ever be true. With every twist and turn of the tale, you just know that there's no way they could have ever happened. But then sometimes, just sometimes, you'd be surprised at just how very wrong you are. From the spring of 1918 until the fall of 1919, the city of New Orleans lived in near-constant fear. Men sat up at night guarding their families with shotguns in hand, and women, terrified to stay alone in their homes at night, would congregate together and keep lanterns burning well into dawn. And children, oh God love them, they'd rush home the moment the street lamps would come on, scared to death that they'd be the next victim of the Axeman in New Orleans. Now some say that the Axeman terrorized New Orleans way back in 1910. And that very well may be true, but it wasn't until Mr. and Mrs. Maggio were found brutally murdered in their homes on May 23rd of 1918 that folks in the city began to get a mite nervous. Now, Mr. Maggio's younger brothers, Andrew and Jake, they'd been out all night drinking and celebrating on account that Andrew had enlisted himself in the Navy. And it was well past midnight when the two brothers staggered back to their rooms just above their family's market and across the hall from where their older brother and his wife slept. And it's said that Andrew could hear muffled sounds coming from Joe's and Catherine's rooms as he settled in, but he was much too drunk to go over there and see what all that commotion was about. Finally, though, around sunrise, Andrew woke up from his drunken stupor and heard a strangled, gurgling sound coming from his oldest brother's apartments. Why, would somebody might be ill, Andrew knocked on a door and let himself in. And what that boy saw caused him to be the one that ended up being ill. Joe and Catherine Maggio were barely recognizable with their heads smashed open like overripe tomatoes as they lay sprawled across the bed and the floor, soaked in their own blood. Well, Jake came running out of his rooms like a shot when he heard Andrew's strangled cries and sobs. He took one look at the ghastly scene and dashed to the foot of the bed to help Catherine, but Jake's efforts only exposed the slash at her neck that had nearly taken her head clean off. And as Andrew regained his composure, he heard the same gurgling sound from before coming from Joe's side of the bed. Well, Andrew yelled for Jake to run and call the police and the ambulance, but it's no use, though. Joe died in Andrew's arms before Jake could even make it downstairs to the street. When the police finally arrived later that morning, they saw that the murder had knocked out a panel in the back door of the Maggio's home so they could slip inside. 
Bloody clothes were found in the corner of the couple's bedroom, and the family's woodcutting axe was propped up against the wall next to the wash basin. Now, hardly anything was taken from the room, and neither Andrew or Jake could find any reason for somebody to want to hurt poor Joe and Catherine, which deeply confounded the police. Why would anybody want to do such an awful thing for no reason at all? Eventually, though, the police figured seeing as how the Maggios were hot-headed Sicilians, Andrew must have killed his brother and sister-in-law over a blood feud of some sort. You see, they thought that Andrew had cut Joe's and Catherine's throats while they slept, then mutilated them with the axe in a blind rage. And unfortunately for him, later that afternoon, a straight razor that looked an awful lot like the one Andrew was known to have was found in a neighbor's garden. For three days, that boy was accused of killing his family, even though Andrew never once wavered in his statement. Well, it wasn't until a number of folks in the community attested to Andrew's character and his own razor was found in his rooms that he was eventually released from jail, just in time to attend Joe's and Catherine's funerals. Now, over the next month, the city fell back into an easy routine and the terrible slaughter of the Maggios was soon forgotten. Well... Until the morning of June 27th, that is. During his delivery rounds for the day, the bakery boy found Louis Bessemer and Miss Harriet Lowe in a pool of blood in the apartment above Bessemer's Market. The police and the ambulance were called to help the couple, and once again the police found a panel in the apartment's back door knocked out and a bloody axe belonging to Bessemer in the corner of the bathroom. Now, thankfully, the couple was still alive when they were found and were quickly rushed off to Charity Hospital. Bessemer was treated for a cracked skull, and Miss Harriet was kept on for a few days for a terrible blow to the head that some say nearly peeled her face off at the ear. Well, now, when news of the latest attack began to spread, folks started to wonder if there might be a crazed killer on the loose in the streets of New Orleans. Why, the police even arrested a perfectly innocent man on account that Miss Harriet, while barely conscious and hardly the wits of a green potato about it at the time, said a mixed fella had attacked her. <laughs> and Bessemer only made matters worse when he told police that he suspected one of his former clerks of being the attacker, a man who just so happened to be black, mind you. <laughs> Some folks just beg all belief now, don't they? Well now, as the weeks and the months wore on, the two lovers, well, <laughs> they eventually turned on one another as their stories started falling apart. <laughs> they ended up slinging so much mud at each other, you'd think they was prized pigs. And then, when Bessemer's wife finally came home from Cincinnati after her convalescence from the Spanish flu, only to find the mess her husband was in. <laughs> Ooh, I tell you what, the press had a field day, y'all. Well, with all the conflicting accounts of what happened that night and all the carrying on afterwards, the police soon began to suspect that the whole incident was nothing more than a nasty, salacious lover's quarrel. <laughs> Can you imagine? Anyway, Miss Harriet eventually died several weeks after the attack due to complications from her injuries. And even though there was a whole heap of evidence that seemed to prove that Bessemer had been the one who attacked Miss Harriet all along, why that nice white man was acquitted of all charges. Mm, 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 mm. Now, during all of this hullabaloo, nine days later, on August 5th, a heavily pregnant Ann Schneider was attacked in her home in the middle of the night. 
It was said that the only thing Miss Anna could recall was waking up to see a shadowy figure standing over her. And the next thing she knew, Miss Anna came to in Charity Hospital with her face and head cut to ribbons and several of her teeth missing. Edward, Miss Anna's husband, had returned home from work that morning to find his wife unconscious and covered in blood. The police found shards from a broken lamp next to the couple's bed and figured it was what had been used to attack Miss Anna. Other than that and a few missing dollars from Edward's wallet, there was really nothing else for the police to go on. It was about this time that investigating officers began to wonder if there might be a link between the attacks on Miss Anna and the other two previous assaults. We had lost for leads and desperate to find their man. Officers soon began arresting anybody who even looked at them funny. And unfortunately for James Gleason, he didn't just look at them officers funny, he flat out ran from them. When police finally caught Gleason and arrested him, they asked him why he ran. Frustrated and scared, Gleason told them what else was I supposed to do. Y'all keep throwing me in jail for things I ain't ever done just cause my skin ain't the right color. I learned the hard way to run if there's ever police around. Well, thankfully, that old boy was released later that same day since there was absolutely no evidence to prove he had anything to do with Miss Anna's attack. Now, despite her injuries, two days after the attack, Miss Anna gave birth to a healthy baby girl and returned home with her husband the following week where she recovered fully. Within a few days of the assault on Miss Anna, the Times Picune began running detailed and overly graphic articles linking the three attacks and eventually labeled the villain responsible for him the Axeman of New Orleans. Folks all over the city grew more anxious with fear every day, even as they ate up everybody gossip they could find about the attacks. Everybody wanted to know where the Axeman would strike next. Well, they didn't have to wait too long to find out. Just five days after Miss Anna's attack on August 10th, Joe Romano was struck in the head with an axe while he slept just across the hall from his two nieces, Pauline and Mary. Nate said that Miss Pauline woke up to the sounds of struggle just across the hall, and just as she was about to get up to see what was going on, a strange man appeared in her doorway. And after staring at each other for a few seconds, Miss Pauline began to scream her head off, which caused her sister to startle awake and the stranger to run away and disappear into the night. A moment later, the girl's uncle staggered into their rooms, clutching his bloodied head, saying he'd been attacked. And the two girls rushed to Joe's side to help him into a chair before he passed out, and then they dashed off to call for help. Joe was able to walk to the ambulance once it arrived, but... Sadly, he died from his injuries two days later. Now, when police questioned her, Miss Pauline told them that the man she saw in the doorway was tall and burly with dark skin wearing a dark suit and black hat. It was soon discovered that the house had been ransacked, but after taking stock of everything, it seemed nothing was missing, though. Police also found that the Romano's back door had a missing panel from it and the family's axe, slick with blood and offal, was laying in the back garden. Once again, the police were stumped as to who the killer could be and if the attacks were the work of the same man. Well, as the gruesome details of yet another attack were splashed across the front pages, the already panicked city quickly turned terrified and vigilant. Gangs of mostly white men and boys would roam the streets looking for any suspicious fellas, which more often than not ended up being black or Sicilian folks that either they already had a grudge against or they just plain didn't like because they were dark-skinned. 
for a couple of months, a number of innocent black and Sicilian men and boys were murdered in cold blood, sometimes by the police assuming that they had the axe men in their sights, or by lynch mobs pretending they were seeking justice. Y'all New Orleans was a frightening place to live for a good long while in the fall of 1918. Oh, why sure. White folks were justifiably frightened to some degree because nobody knew who the Axeman's next victim would be. But it was even more dangerous for the already disparaged African-American population and the newly vilified Italian-Americans of the city. Folks all over was holding their breath in fear, just waiting for something awful to happen. Only nothing did happen. Not for a while, at least. The holidays came and went, and the Crescent City welcomed the 1919 New Year in with open arms. Once again, the city began to settle back into its old, relaxed routine, and everybody's fear of the Axeman started to fade away. Unfortunately for the Cordomiglia family over in Gretna, though, the Axeman wasn't quite done with New Orleans yet. On the night of March 10th, a blood-cuddling scream could be heard coming from the Cordomigla house over in the village of Gretna, just south of New Orleans. Neighbors rushed up onto the porch to see that Miss Rosie was leaning heavily on the door jam, her face and hair drenched in blood, holding her baby daughter Mary limply in her arms. Miss Rosie's husband, Charles, was found laying in the floor just inside the door with blood pouring out of a gash in his head with every beat of his heart. The family was sped off to Charity Hospital, where doctors found that both Rosie and Charles had cracked skulls. Sadly, though, the couple's poor two-year-old baby girl died before the ambulance ever arrived. Well, now, the court Miglias eventually recovered enough to make statements to the police. Charles and Rosie both admitted that they hadn't seen anything that night, but with pressure from Gretna police, Miss Rosie later said that the neighbors, Mr. Jordana and his son Frank, had attacked them. But here's the thing, y'all. The police over in Gretna knew full well that Jordano and his son had nothing to do with any of it. You see, by the time them good old boys finally decided to saunter on over to the Cordomiglia house, they'd already decided that the whole thing was most likely just some Italian dispute that got out of hand. <laughs> it never even occurred to them that an axe attack could be linked to the axe man or any of his previous crimes. Well now, what few fingerprints the police took that night were so damaged they couldn't be used for anything. And instead of treating it like it was evidence as they should have, well, when those nincompoops found a panel for the Cordomiglia's back door knocked out, why, they just nailed it back into place like they's being all helpful. Lord y'all, it's a thousand wonders they didn't decide to wash the bloody axe off, too. I swear, some folks couldn't find their rear ends with both hands in their back pockets. Well, after finagling Miss Rosie into saying Giordano and his son Frank was who attacked them, the Gretna police arrested them both without any other evidence. Now, just so's y'all know, Mr. Giordano was nearly blind in both eyes and had arthritis in his knees so bad he could barely walk on a good day, much less chase a young, healthy couple around their house swinging an axe. And poor old Frank, well, at six foot two and nearly 200 pounds, there was absolutely no way that child could have squeezed his body through that teeny tiny hole in the back door and not busted the whole thing down in the process. Most folks think these days that once the Gretna police realized their mistakes, they were desperate to cover up the whole thing. And what better way to do that than to frame two Italian fellas for it, right? 
Well, sadly, later that summer, the Giordanos were both convicted for the Cotomiglia family's attack and the murder of baby Mary. Mr. Giordano was sentenced to life in prison, and poor old Frank was condemned to hang. Well, now, the Giordanos were not willing to give up without a fight, so they spent the next year appealing the rulings. And thankfully, those appeals delayed Frank's hanging long enough for Miss Rosie to recant her statements, which, without any other evidence, overturned the convictions. Now, just three days after the Cordomiglias were attacked, the Times-Picune received a mysterious letter supposedly from the Axeman himself. Hot as hell. March 13, 1919. Esteemed mortal of New Orleans, they have never caught me and they never will. They have never seen me, for I am invisible, even as the ether that surrounds your earth. I am not a human being, but a spirit and a demon from the hottest hell. I am what you Orleanians and your foolish police call the Axeman. When I see fit, I shall come and claim other victims. I alone know who they shall be. I shall leave no clue except my bloody axe, besmeared with blood and brains of he who I have sent below to keep me company. If you wish, you may tell the police to be careful not to rile me. Of course, I am a reasonable spirit. I take no offense in the way that they have conducted their investigations in the past. In fact, they have been so utterly stupid as to not only amuse me, but its satanic majesty, Francis Joseph, and the like. But tell them to beware. Let them not try to discover what I am, for were it better that they were never born than to incur the wrath of the Axeman. I don't think that there is any need of such a warning. For I feel sure the police will always dodge me, as they have in the past. They are wise and know how to keep away from all harm. Undoubtedly, you Orleanians think of me as a most horrible murderer, which I am. But I could be much worse if I wanted to. If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, and the worst, for I am close in relationship with the angel of death. Now, to be exact, at 12.15, earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I am going to pass over New Orleans. In my infinite mercy, I am going to make a little proposition to you people. There it is. I am very fond of jazz music, and I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well then, so much the better for you people. One thing is certain. And that is some of your people who do not jazz it out on that specific Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Well, as I am cold, 
and crave the warmth of my native Tatars. And it is about time I leave your earthly home. I will cease my discourse. Hoping that thou wilt publish this, that it may go well with thee. I have been, am, and will be the worst spirit that ever existed in either fact or realm of fantasy. The Axeman. And that's exactly what happened, y'all. On the 9th of March 19th, every single home and bar and jazz club and dance hall was packed to the rafters with folks dancing to jazz music. Some folks simply took it as an opportunity to foxtrot and one-step the night away, while others took the demon axe man's letter to heart, playing jazz music all night long as if their lives depended on it. Now there's some who say that the axe man didn't write the letter, and there's some who say that they could smell the brimstone on the newspaper as they read that evil letter. Now some say composer and jazz musician Don DeVilla was the one who wrote the letter in order to drum up interest in his music, and others say that a group of bored college boys wrote it as a gaffe, never expecting that the Times Picune would ever publish the letter, let alone the entire town come to a standstill in order to jazz it all night long. But that night it didn't matter if you were black or white, Chinese, Sicilian, Irish, Native, French, Spanish, or some blend of many. When it came to jazz, everybody was the same. <laughs> Turns out everybody was a beloved and cherished child of the Big Easy that night. Honestly though, it really don't matter who wrote the letter anyhow. Once it was published and the night of jazz came and went, the Axeman vanished entirely. Oh sure, there were a couple of other incidents that folks say were committed by the Axeman, like Steve Boker and Sarah Lauman's assault. But when folks look deeper into those events, it looks less like the work of the Axeman and more like random flood robberies. And Mike Peppertone's murder? <laughs> well, y'all, that's such a wild affair that it needs its very own story to tell it right. Now, it's been over a hundred years since the Axeman stalked the streets of New Orleans. These days, his crimes and his victims are nothing more than a footnote in the long history of the Crescent City, a story told by tour guides as you walk up and down the streets and past houses of the victims sipping on hurricanes and snapping selfies. But it's important for us to know and remember that this isn't just some wild, long-legged tale, y'all. The legend of the Axeman in New Orleans is a twisted tale full of bigotry and racism, police abuse and brutality, and just plain old nasty hate. And we can all pretend that this sort of story could only ever happen in the early 20th century, but I think we'd all know deep down that we'd be telling our very own long-legged tales then. Hey y'all, I just wanted to say welcome and thank y'all for stopping by. I'm Miss Dahlia and this is Southern Hate Stories. This channel's a home for all the American Southern legends that I've gathered over the years that I want to share with you kind folks. But if you'd rather listen to my stories while y'all are stuck in traffic or doing a little workout, well, that's just fine by me. Won't y'all head on over to that old podcast player of yours and search for Southern Hate Stories there, or you can find all my tales at anchor.fm forward slash Southern Hate Stories. By the way, do you happen to have a local or regional hate story you want to share? 
I'm always looking for southern tales to entertain y'all with, so if you're willing, won't you write me at dlumacavoy at gmail.com and let me know all about the ghosties in your garden. Maybe we can find a place for your story here on the channel sometime. And you know, I'd love to know what you think of Southern Haint stories, so won't you leave a comment or a review so y'all can help me build this into something we can all love and enjoy together. And while y'all are over that way, make sure you take a gander at the description of the channel's homepage and visit all the lovely individuals who help make Southern Haint stories possible. But mostly, I just want to thank y'all so very, very much for coming over and listening. I can't tell y'all how much it means to this old black soul of mine to share all these wonderful stories I grew up listening to with you kind people. Now go on and have a lovely day, you hear? But you better make sure you mosey 